it is a big operation that has a lot of complications that come with it. And that's why um, really patients do better when you have an expert that just does these operations. This is the James Cancer Free World podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Mary Dilhoff. Mary is a surgical oncologist and a specialist in pancreatic cancer, and she is also the co-director of the James Pancreatic Cancer Multidisciplinary Clinic. Mary will fill us in on how she got into medicine and came to specialize in surgical oncology and pancreatic cancer, and we'll also talk about some advances in surgical techniques, including the really interesting James Robotic Whipple Program. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you for having me. So I'm always curious about some of you doctors and your background and how you decided to dedicate your life to what you are dedicating it to. So where'd you grow up and how'd you get interested in medicine and science? Um, well, I had a little bit of a circuitous path. I grew up in rural Ohio and... What, what um, part of rural, uh, rural near, Ohio? About 30 minutes from Lima in Menden, Ohio. Um, so Northwest Ohio. Were you a, a farm child? Dad was a farmer. <laughs> so uh, interesting. So dad was a farmer and had crops, not animals. I was always thankful to not be milking cows at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> Um, and they also, my mom and dad also worked construction together during the day. So, um, so came from a working family. Yeah. You were, they worked between them at 18 to 20 hours a oh, day. Yes. They worked incredibly <laughs> hard, which, which I think really, um, really instills in, um, you know, us that grew up around there and a good work ethic, which is, which has served me very well over the course of my life. And I was lucky enough to have a family doctor in the community that was just um, one of those pillars of the community. And he took a liking to me and he would let me follow him around even as a high school kid. Wow. So I kind of had an interest in medicine. And so I would follow him around. and Like when he visited patients? Yeah. yeah at, he would bring, at their homes? He would not at their <laughs> homes, but he would let me come in the office. He would truck me around, take me to drug rep, dinner, rep, <laughs> drug rep dinners. And I mean, it was really... Um, he really let me see. That was really my first experience of what medicine was. And so... I um, thought I wanted to be a family doctor. Well, so, of course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was like, you know, and he really, he was such an important part of that community that I really admired that and, and wanted to do that. And being from rural Ohio, it was um, very uncommon for women to want to go do that. And I had a guidance counselor that was really discouraging. Yeah. Like, they would ask me, why would you want to do this to your family? <laughs> why are you going to go? Why are you, you know, why are you going to do this? And so I actually registered. W was for, this guidance counselor a man or a woman? It was a man. So, yeah, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I um, actually registered for college then. I was going to go to pharmacy school. So in my mind, that was like this middle ground that I could have a family and do the things I wanted and still be in a healthcare specialty. And so I went full on after that. And I had, so I went to college. I went to the University of Cincinnati and I was in my second year and I was like, well, I better get a job in a phar pharmacy. And, um, and so I did. So I got a job at Walgreens and I was doing my thing and I was a certified pharmacy technician and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. Uh, I, yes. From just going in and observing it when I pick up a prescription, that's a hard job. You're it, on your feet constantly, never get, it's like always doing something. It's incredibly difficult. And I'm sure there are jobs within pharmacy that I would have enjoyed that I just wasn't exposed to. I had yeah. that little exposure of retail pharmacy and I was two years into college and I was like, I, I want to go to medical school. Like that's what I always wanted. 
And so I'd figured out then that if I applied to medical school right then, I could finish college in three years. And then I would only have one additional year. Instead of the six years for pharmacy school, I'd have seven years into medical school. And that's what I should do. And so I changed my mind and went after medical school. And so with the, with the same goal, I wanted to be a family doc. So um, what, what medical school? I, so I was still a homebody. And so <laughs> I, I stayed at Cincinnati. So applied, you know, to several other medical schools and stayed at Cincinnati for medical school then. Well, you aren't living in a home. That's a, would be too far of a commute. That's I'm, true. I so, was a couple hours away. Yeah. Yep. So it's just <laughs> per- well, close enough or far distance. enough. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so went to medical school and again, was going to be a family doc and then soon realized that I, so I did my, my first rotation in third year. So that's really when you start getting some clinical experience. Um, I decided I wanted to do the hardest things first. So I was going to do surgery first, which they assume then you don't want to do surgery. So they are making all the assumption. This kid doesn't want to do surgery. And I loved it like head over heels. This is the best job you could ever want to have. And so I spent that rest of that. What about surgery did you love? You know, I was I was pleasantly surprised that I thought they were good doctors, right? They really did take care of patients, their whole patient and all their medical problems and did surgery and got to fix these things and had such an immediate ability to impact someone's life. And I mean, I just thought it was great. I would have happily worked from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. and came home thrilled about it. And so... Then I spent the rest of my third year looking for something else to do. <laughs> because everybody, again, was like, why, why would you want to do this? Um, and so I hunted and hunted, looked at other surgical subspecialties, and I was like, you know, that's, this is it. That's what I really love to do. And so I thought I would go be a general surgeon. And again, kind of the same way, I'll go be a general surgeon in rural Ohio. So still kind of go back and serve my community. And, um, and um, I thank goodness I have... I had good mentors. I matched in residency here at Ohio State. So I started um, residency here at OSU in 2005. And um, we, as part of residency training, were required to do one or two years of professional development. So whether you go to the lab and do research or you get a a degree of something else, you had to spend some time out of clinical training. And I had um, a mentor, Dr. Bloomston, that um, insisted I come to his lab. Like, you know, he just thought it was going to be great. And that's where I started doing uh, cancer research. Um, And it really opened up a whole new side of medicine and academic medicine that I hadn't really considered. And that really changed my course again to having an interest in cancer and going into surgical oncology. What did his lab study? So we studied mostly, um, well, some pancreas cancer, but solid tumors, pancreas cancer, esophageal cancer. And I studied a small protein that I don't have a basic science lab anymore, but just the the couple years doing that give you a solid base for which, you know, that we can really um, make a career of. And so I learned so much from him and it affected, you know, the way I, you know, thought the way my career really went after that. Well, let me guess, I'm going to see if I can predict what happened, because you said you were interested in being a general surgeon in a rural community, which means a a community hospital where there are general surgeons who do a lot, as opposed to here at the James or the Wexner, where it's such a large place, everyone specializes. But as you went along, you, you fell in love with a certain part of the body and a certain surgery 
and that's the direction you went. You got it. I mean, it's almost laughable, uh, the few operations I do now <laughs> compared to what a general surgeon might do. And yeah, after studying pancreas cancer and solid tumors, um, I mean, I was still driven for these, you know, complex, difficult problems and operations. And so hepatobiliary surgery really um, is, you what know, ki- what kind of surgery? Hepatobiliary surgery <laughs> is surgery that we concentrate on the liver, pancreas, and bile ducts. Oh, I'd never yep. heard that. Yep. So, like, so we call it HPB surgery. And oh. so that really, that's really my specialty. But within HPB surgery, I do about 80 to 90% just pancreas and pancreas cancer. And so we do get very <laughs> narrow here at the James that we do our couple of operations really well. But that's the trend in medicine and cancer medicine at a comprehensive cancer center is center is specialties because you're now one of the best in the country in pancreas cancer yeah, because I mean, you specialize in it. It sure is. You know, I tell patients you want to go to a hospital with a surgeon that does a lot in a hospital that does a lot, and those yeah. things make a big difference in how how in the outcomes for our patients. So you were a resident here, figuring out what you wanted to do, and somehow or other, you're still here. So what happened to keep you here? Um, So after my seven years of residency um, to do surgical oncology, we do two additional years of fellowship training. And so um, I, there's many places across the country that you can do that. We train our fe- fellows here. Um, I went and interviewed at Memorial Sloan Kettering and, again, was really um, – uh, in love when I saw, I, I had dinner there that night and I called my like husband. The rural Ohio girl in the big Went city of New York. Wow. There you go. <laughs> I literally, I, they have dinner. I've seen the show on Netflix. That was it. So I, uh, so I, they have dinner for you, um, the night before the, um, interviews and you're in this beautiful building way up overlooking Manhattan. And I called yeah. my husband and I said, I know you really don't want to do this, but we really have to come here. <laughs> So I was fortunate enough to match there. And so we lived in Manhattan for two years to finish um, training. And I, so I got some of the best training that you can get in the country. And then um, I thought we were going to move to the East Coast and stay on the East Coast. But really what we learned is that Columbus is a really great place to live. And so then we, when it came time to look for jobs, that's what, um, then we came looking back to Ohio. Well, I'm guessing you might have been recruited. Uh, yes, thankfully. <laughs> yes, very, very um, thankfully. I had um, uh, Dr. Higgins was the chair at the time. And, you know, I had loved training here. I had really great training um, in general surgery here. And so I had a lot of connections to the people and the training program. And I was really proud to come back here and work. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into the James Robotic Whipple program and learn all about it. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Mary Dilhoff, co-director of the James Pancreatic Cancer Multidisciplinary Clinic. And we're going to talk about the James Robotic Whipple program, but first I think it'll help people to understand briefly what the pancreas is, what it does, and and how cancer kind of invades it. 
Sure. So the pancreas is an, it's a glandular organ in our bodies that really has two main functions for us. One's to make insulin so that we're not diabetics. And the other is it makes enzymes that help us digest food, especially fatty food. So that's its two main functions. And like many other solid organs in our body, we can develop cancers in those organs. Um, pancreas cancer has been especially difficult to treat because even um, for small tumors, those tumors like to grow and spread very early. And we don't have good early detection programs for pancreas cancer like we do for th um, other cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer. How would a person know that, that they had it? What would be the symptoms or signs? The symptoms are very, um, at first, usually um, vague and nondescript, and that's why people often won't know. The one symptom that really drives people to get medical care is if they become jaundiced. So their skin oh. or turns yellow or the whites of their eyes turn yellow, and that invariably leads people to getting, um, to getting medical attention. But depending on where the tumor is located in the pancreas, sometimes you won't turn jaundice. And for those situations, the, tumors are the, the symptoms are usually vague, like weight loss or feeling unwell or having some pain. And then it takes a lot longer for, to get enough symptoms to prompt an investigation. So because of that, I'm guessing that in many cases, it's in more advanced stages by the time the person gets to you and the treatment is going to be more difficult than as opposed to detecting a tiny, tiny lump in a, mam a mammogram or a precancerous polyp in a colonoscopy. That's exactly right. And so about 80 to 85% of our patients will have spread of disease at diagnosis. And once the disease is spread outside the pancreas, then surgery is not as helpful. And so generally, we then treat those tumor, those cancers with chemotherapy so that we're treating all of the disease. So really, um, we really need better ways of screening and diagnosing early. Can a person live without a pancreas? You actually can. Um, you can replace those functions, so you can replace the insulin. It's a, a difficult to control diabetes, but with newer technologies has gotten slightly easier. And those enzymes that, we, um, that it makes, you can replace with a pill. So you're replacing the functions with medications that you, you probably, that's the last resort, I'm guessing, because they're going to have side effects that... Right. You know, it could it's, be challenging. It's never as perfect as the yeah. way it was, you know, a, you know, a normal functioning organ. But for most cancers, we don't have to remove the whole organ. We remove the, either mm -hmm. the head, which is a Whipple operation, which we'll talk about, or the tail. Uh, and so we generally remove the tail of the pancreas and the spleen. So really, it's kind of two main operations. It's either right-sided operation or a left-sided operation. Well, let's talk about the Whipple operation and... What is it? <laughs> so Whipple operation. So that name itself is, it's called Whipple after the surgeon that created it back oh, in the okay. 30s. So I Dr. Alan O. Whipple. <laughs> yes. So that's where it came from. Very different operation from what is today, not in so much the nuts and bolts of what organs we remove, but the safety and the complications. We can really perform this operation um, in a safe way now that we couldn't, you know, 80 and 90 years ago. Well, was it harder and less safe before because of how far inside the patient you had to go? Um, you know, no, we can, even if we do them open, so kind of the old fashioned way with an incision, even now they are much safer. And some of it is just this operation has been perfected by doing it over and over and over again. So the when Whipple you have surgeons, surgery. the Whipple surgery. So when you have places like Ohio State and other big high volume places that just do it over and over again, we found the best ways to try to decrease your risk of dying from the operations or your risk of having any complications from the operation. Okay, so what exactly did Dr. Whipple discover? So the operation in, in a nutshell 
is you remove the last little portion of stomach, the first portion of the small intestine called the duodenum, the head of the pancreas. Now, why would you eliminate those things, the stomach and the, and the ah, other? Ah, that's a great question. So um, it's because the the blood supply is shared with that head oh, of the pancreas. So we okay. can't just take out the head of the pancreas and, and be done. You really have to take out the rest of those organs to remove a tumor in that location. And so, and then, so you take out then the gallbladder and the bile, part of the bile duct, then you have to put everything back together. So you take a piece of intestine, sew it to the pancreas, so pancreas juice gets through, sew it to the bile duct, so bile gets through, and then sew it to the stomach, so food gets through. And that's a whipple in a nutshell. Uh, so what parts do you actually take out and leave out? Yep. So the last little th- portion of stomach, the first portion of the small intestine called the duodenum, the head of the pancreas, part of the bile duct, and the gallbladder. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. And that's why in, in, you can see that doing that, um, it is a big operation that has a lot of complications that come with it. And that's why um, really patients do better when you have an expert that just does these operations. So before the Whipple, how big of an incision would that have required? Before robot before, before yeah. the robotic Whipple, yes. So generally um, people will get an incision from their breastbone to right below their belly button. And so, um, and that operation will take anywhere from three to six hours, depending on if any of the blood vessels are involved that live in that area. Because that's the other thing that um, makes a difference when these cancers arise in the pancreas, some of the important blood vessels in our abdomen live right behind there. So the vein that brings blood back to our liver from our intestines and the artery that brings blood to our intestines lives right behind the pancreas. So as these tumors grow, it can grow up to those blood vessels or surround those blood vessels. And then we have to take care of that or get all the cancer out during the operation. Wow. So now with the Whipple and the robotic, if I I understand a little from others, but you'll correct me and improve upon what I say, but you're taking two or three smaller incisions and you're able to insert specially designed tools in there that allow you to guide them. But so what exactly, how many incisions or do you have to do and how, what tools are you using? Yeah. So, um, so the really great thing about technology is you really get a very similar operation inside we just do it through six small incisions. Six. Yep. Okay. So you take, so we make the small incisions. We put these trocars into the abdominal wall, and that's where we put the instruments through. A trocar? A trocar is just a tube. It's a metal okay. tube, essentially. Tube. Okay. So you put those, and that's what we put our instruments through, and then you dock the robot, which is simply a machine that we control. So the robot right. has no brain. <laughs> right. It is not performing any of the operation. Everybody thinks it might be autonomous. Yeah. It's not performing anything autonomous. So we dock that I know, robot. I think that's a misnomer robotic. It it's, definitely <laughs> is. Like people think that maybe it has some function at this point in time. It really is controlled by us. And we sit in the same room. We sit at a console. And that's the real fun part of it. We sit comfortably at a console and you then control those robot arms through two controls that you sit comfortably and control. Now you have six um, points of entry because each one is where you put a certain something that allows you to have the vision and the tools you need. So six is the number of, so each one has instruments put in Exactly. So one will be a camera. Yeah. Then there's three robotic arms that are working. And then there's two other assistant arms. So we actually still have a trained person at the bedside that's assisting in the operation. So they'll usually use suction or help us retract in that. So that's those other two are assistants. And then one of them gets lengthened very slightly. And that's what we take out the tumor the, and the organs oh, out of oh, after putting it in the bag. Because you need one 
incision larger to remove things. And the thing that always fascinates me, the skill required is it doesn't seem natural because you're not, you're looking at a TV screen and adjusting instruments. It must take practice to learn how to do that. I mean, there really is, just like you said, it really is practice because it is slightly different than when we operate open, which is a lot of us have learned open and are real experts in open. There are really good things also, though, about the robot. It's magnified 10 times. Your your vision. The vision is. And so, and it's in 3D and um, the camera is still and you have control of it. So it's, you know, there's no motion, it's not moving. And so you really, um, in some ways, you can see some of those small areas that you're trying to put sutures in better than when we are operating. Sometimes we even operate with what we call loops, which are little microscopes on our, on glasses, but those, those usually magnify two times. And so we really do have a way to see a lot better, um, using the robot. Those loops you say that you put on your glasses, that's for an open incision. So you see twice as good there, but with robotics, 10 10 times. times. So Wow, ten times is big. <laughs> it is very big, and so there's other things that um, that can be helpful. We can give some dye and some um, and into the blood vessels and see blood vessels. Uh, um, the technology will surely keep advancing. Where I foresee, at some point in our careers, we'll probably be able to combine their imaging, their you know CT scans and such, with you know what we're seeing, and really be able to know where exactly are tumors in relationship to blood vessels and such. So this technology will keep improving, you know, over the course of our lives. So the advantages seem to me it's less invasive. Mm -hmm. You, and with this extra magnification, you have better field of vision. What are some of the other benefits? The biggest, yeah, the biggest benefit that I can see so far is really the the midterm recovery. And so we'll call that recovery in the two to four week range the patients that have the robotic operation are really getting back to their life quicker, meaning they're up and about, they're getting back to exercise, they're really leading somewhat normal lives. I've had patients go back to work at two weeks, which is um, a really short time for having a Whipple operation. And it's not just, um, you know, it's not just the, the length of the incision, but when we make an open incision, we put retractors in and we really pull on the abdominal wall. And that really adds to the people's, yeah. um, the patient's um, pain and their post-operative recovery. And so patients are really, are, are slowly, we're seeing, you know, they're going home quicker. They're really getting back to life faster. Now, how long have you been doing these surgeries? We started the first one in 2017 um, and we've done about 150 cents. Um, our program, you know, we really started back then. We spent about a year training before we did the first one. We took our team. We went and watched several other surgeons. We practiced on cadavers. We really, um, we really tried hard to know that we could do this operation and we could be safe. And it was the best thing for our patients that we were going to benefit them. So we really spent a year um, really practicing this new skill. So that's exactly what you were talking about before, is that you, a large comprehensive cancer center is going to have done the training and done the number of surgeries to make them experts, which you have become since 2017. Yeah. I mean, it was important to us that, you know, I wanted to, um, to know that we would be safe, right? Of course, we want to give patients the best possible care they can get. And that we were creating a program that would last. And it wasn't just about me, that we were really training our whole team 
to have this program. And I'm really proud to say that now all of our partners, all of our you know um, surgical oncology HPB partners here do them now. Um, and so it really is a team effort. And that's really how we get to take the best care of our patients. Well, let's end on a little bit of a adding on to the team effort, the multidisciplinary clinic that you co-lead. What are another one or two advances in treating pancreatic cancer that you're working on? This, so this is a great team, and this is really a patient-centric um, way to take care of patients with pa- pancreas cancer. So we know patients with pancreas cancer need care from multiple people, from a medical oncology to surgi- surgical oncology to radi- radiation oncologists. And then our pharmacists, our nurses, our physical therapists, our nutritionists, all of those people have a really important role in taking care of our patients. And this clinic is a way that we can, they can, the patients can see all those people on one single day. So they'll come in, they'll get their imaging and lab work in the morning. They'll see our nurse practitioner. We have a tumor board in which all of those specialties with the radiologist will sit down and look at the images, review the case, and decide the best course of um, care. And then they'll see all the doctors in the afternoon. So really in one day, they can really get a full opinion from all those physicians in a really um, efficient and high quality way. You know, as you were saying that, you mentioned nutritionists. I was wondering, because the the pancreas impacts digestion and insulin, that nutritionists might be extra important for your patients. You got it. That really is an important part of the care for these patients. Some of them have exocrine insufficiency, so they don't have enough of that enzyme that helps us digest the fat. And so some of them will lose some of those vitamins and lose weight. Um, and so, and then the diabetes is also difficult for yeah. some patients. And so, um, the combination of those, you know, all of anything we can do to help them, um, be as fit as possible to tolerate the, the med- you know, the medical therapies and surgery, the better. So, you know, I, I, being a runner, I like to tell them, um, you know, this is like, like surgery, a Whipple operation. It's like a marathon and the better, the more fit you go into that marathon, the easier it is. You train all the time, and marathon's really not very difficult. But if you don't train yeah. for it and you show up and try to decide yeah. to wing it, it can be it's very difficult. Be right. <laughs> yeah. So let's end. I'm, I'm thinking back to the guidance counselor in high school who um, discouraged you from going to medical school. And we're not going to pick on him. But if you were a guidance counselor now and uh, a woman or a, or a young man or woman came to you, what would you tell them about a career in medicine? Oh, I mean, I love, I love medicine and I would encourage my kids to go into medicine and any other kids to go into medicine. And the, and I think, you know, we just encourage everyone. So, you know, if you see little kids, like encourage them to dream big, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think that's the important thing. Dream big. What's been the most rewarding thing for you over these past 10 or 15 years? You know, um, surgery has so many things that can be rewarding. And that's probably the best thing about surgery is that we have all these pockets of, of things that provide satisfaction. Clinical care is amazing. So our patients and taking care of patients, that's what probably drives most of us to do this, right? And so that really um, uh, is never, it's always, it's always stimulating. You never get, you know, you never learn all there is to learn. And then there's the academic piece of it. You know, can we learn, what can we learn about taking care of these patients and improve it? There's the technical piece of it. How can we do these operations better? There's the education piece and teaching, you know, the next, the fellows and residents. So like, there's so many pieces that we can draw 
um, rewards from that if one is a little bit not so nice, you know, there's so many others you can draw from that I think this mix is really what makes medicine great. There you go. This is like, a, it's like a farm where you have to have skills in like 50 different areas. <laughs> Maybe this so is why this is so good. You have the right upbringing in rural Ohio. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your background and the Whipple program. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more, for more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.